Well, this morning, if you would, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the New Testament book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, and we will be looking this morning at verses 10 through 13. Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 10 through 13 as we continue to work our way through the book of Ephesians verse by verse. Last week we looked at Ephesians 3 and verses 7 through 9 where the Apostle Paul said, God made me a minister of the gospel. It wasn't because of his talents, it wasn't because of his intellect, it wasn't because of his personality, it was because God made him a minister of the gospel. And Paul says, though I am the very least of all the saints, God chose me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I am to bring the light of the gospel to everyone. It is to go to all nations. And if you remember what we looked at at the very end of last week is that we, as a church, as individual Christians, stand in the lineage and the heritage of the Apostle Paul. We are unworthy to be used by God, undeserving to be used by God, but he uses us anyway to lift up the name of Jesus and to lift up the unsearchable riches of Christ so that God may gather his church from all peoples and nations and tongues and languages so that people may be gathered from all the people groups all over the world. And so Paul moves on and he says, so that through, starting in verse 10 of chapter 3, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God may might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Well, our first point this morning is the manifold wisdom of God. That will be the key term in the message this morning. In verse 10, Paul says, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. So what is the manifold wisdom of God? The manifold wisdom of God is the glorious salvation that is found in Christ, a salvation that includes both believing Jews and believing Gentiles. It is everything that we have been learning in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, through Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9. And remember, when you are interpreting the Bible, share this many times with you, context is king. What's the context? Always ask yourself, what is the context of this verse? And the context here is clearly the unfolded, unveiled mystery of God. The New Testament mystery found in Ephesians 3, 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The gospel brings together believing Jews and believing Gentiles so they become one new man. 
part of one body, part of the same inheritance in Christ. And manifold, the word manifold here is an interesting word. It means multicolored, multifaceted, infinite diversity, sparkling beauty. It's like seeing a rainbow, a clear rainbow after a rainstorm. It has so many facets, so many beautiful colors that we behold. And so is the manifold wisdom of God. Our salvation has so many facets, so many aspects that we could dwell on. It's almost an endless list. For example, our salvation is about our forgiveness, that we have been forgiven of our sins. Another aspect of our salvation is that we have been reconciled to God Though we rebelled against him and sinned against him, we have now, through Christ, through his righteousness, been reconciled to God. Another aspect is that we have been adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. Another aspect is that we have an eternal, everlasting inheritance in Christ. And the list could go on and on. Oh, the manifold wisdom of God. But let me give you a very easy to remember simple definition of the manifold wisdom of God the manifold wisdom of God can be defined in two words Jesus Christ he is the manifold wisdom of God all that I just expressed to you all that we could possibly say about our glorious salvation in Christ is summed up in the words in the names title Jesus Christ. It is all wrapped up in our glorious, precious Savior. Well, Paul goes on to say that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That is an interesting statement. Through the church, through us, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Who are these rulers and authorities? In this particular context, the rulers and the authorities are a reference to angels. Now, some think that this may refer to both good angels and bad angels, bad angels being fallen angels or demons. But the predominant view in all the commentaries that I read is that this is the good angels. That the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the angels in heaven. And here's the thought. It's fascinating. We find this a few other places in the New Testament, but not many places. God is displaying the glory of Jesus' person and work to the angels in heaven. That God is constantly displaying the greatness of his salvation in Christ so the angels in heaven can behold it. Angels are fascinating. I just find them so intriguing. Now, there's a lot of false things that are said about angels out in the world, but forget all that. Just the st a study of the Old Testament and New Testament and, and what angels are 
is amazing and what they do and how they are used of God. Back in 2006, I did a whole series of sermons just called Angels and Demons. And it was one of the most interesting or intriguing studies that I've ever had. I've always been interested in angels. I believe they are very real. And they are around us all the time, though we do not see them, and they are used in a mighty and powerful way by God. Salvation is of a special interest to angels. Let me give you a few examples. First Peter chapter 1, Peter is talking about the Old Testament prophets who tried to understand what they were prophesying about in relation to the coming of the Messiah. They understood some, but not all of it. And so in 1 Peter 1.12, it says this, It was revealed to them, to the Old Testament prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you, you Christians, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now watch this last sentence. Even angels long to look into these things. Angels are not omniscient. They don't know everything. They were created before the earth was created. They are sinless, but they are not infinite. They are simply creatures of a whole different category than we are. And they have always been living as long as we have. And they, so they watched from the Old Testament to the New, and they have been intrigued by this whole salvation that God has provided through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They have watched. Remember, when Jesus was born, they were very present. And they sang in the heavens and told the shepherds about the newborn king. And then they watched this Messiah, who they knew from heaven, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. They watch him grow up, live a perfect life, and they watch him be crucified. And they watch him rise from the dead. And they watch him provide salvation for sinful, rebellious people who are, when they believe, brought into the family of God, and they are fascinated by it. They long to look into these things, Peter says, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the parable of the lost coin. There was a woman who had a valuable coin and she lost it. So she lit a lamp, she swept her home, and she looked intently for that lost coin. And when she found it, she called together all of her relatives and friends and said, Come and rejoice with me because I found the lost coin. And then in Luke chapter 15 and verse 10, Jesus then says this, In the same way... I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I don't know about you, but I take that literally. I do. Isn't that fascinating? When someone comes to know Christ as Savior anywhere in the world, the angels of God rejoice. There is rejoicing in heaven every time a sinner repents and believes the gospel, and comes to know Christ as Savior. It's fascinating. The angels are watching. All the aspects of salvation unfold all over the world. In Revelation chapter 5, 
we have this majestic scene. God is seated on his throne. And then enters the lamb who was slain. And the lamb comes and takes the scroll from the, ha the right hand of him who sits on the throne. And they are surrounded by the four living creatures and the 24 elders. And the slain lamb takes the scroll from the hand of him who was seated on the throne because the lamb is the only one worthy to open the scroll and to see what is inside of it. And all heaven rejoices. All heaven breaks out in praise. And in Revelation chapter 5 verses 11 and 12, the apostle John says, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And that's what the angels do. They praise and glorify God for all of his aspects, but especially for his salvation. And they say, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And Ephesians 3.10 harmonizes beautifully with all of those verses. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly Places. Well, that brings us to our second point this morning, and that is the glory of God. In verse 11, it says, This, this being that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the angels in heaven, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, this unveiling of the manifold wisdom of God before the angels in heaven was in perfect harmony with, it was according to the eternal purpose that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's eternal purpose in Christ is to bring glory to himself. Don't miss that this morning. God's eternal purpose in Christ is to bring glory to himself. In every commentary I studied, it says this is clearly in the New Testament, the eternal purpose of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us be reminded this morning the church does not exist for itself. The church exists for the glory of God. The reason we are here this morning the reason you exist, the reason we gather together is so that we might give praise and glory to God. Here's the thought as we put together verses 10 and 11. When the angels in heaven behold the works and the wisdom of God displayed in the church, especially in his salvation, their knowledge of the God they adore increases and they rejoice and glorify him. So the more that the angels see people being saved, they see the gospel being taken to all people groups in all parts of the world. When they see lives like yours radically transformed and changed by the gospel, the angels break out in praise and glory. They love it. 
as God, through the church, displays the manifold wisdom of God. John MacArthur has a fascinating quote on this. Don't miss it. It's not something you hear very often. This is what he says. In the classroom of God's universe, he is the teacher, the angels are the students, the church is the illustration, and the subject is the manifold wisdom of God. I love that. I love that. In God's classroom, in his universal classroom, he's the teacher, the angels are the students. The church is the illustration, and the subject is the manifold wisdom of God. So, in verse 12, Paul says, In whom, in Christ Jesus our Lord, through whom, or this is all according to the eternal purpose that God is realizing in Christ Jesus our Lord, and he in essence is saying, and don't forget, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Here's the thought. God glorifies himself by allowing his redeemed people to boldly and confidently come into his presence. Wow. God brings glory to himself. The angels glorify him because God allows us, sinful men and women, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, to come directly into his presence. Now you may know well in Judaism in the Old Testament, only the high priest could enter the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And that, but briefly, once a year on the Day of Atonement. So the only person who could go behind the great veil into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was located, where the very presence of God resided, the only person who could go in there once a year was the high priest to make atonement for the sins of the people. Anyone else who would come into God's presence would die instantly. In the Old Testament economy, if I walked into the presence of God behind the great veil, behind the great curtain, into the Ark of the Covenant, I would die on the spot, and so would you. But now, Paul says, every person who comes to faith in Christ, every born-again believer, can come before God at any time and they, can, and they can come with boldness and confident access right into his very presence. Can you imagine the angels watching this? They knew everything that happened in the Old Testament, and now they watch unworthy, sinful people like us who have come to know Christ as Savior, clothed in the very righteousness of Christ, and we come right into the very presence of God. You can almost hear the angels. Are you kidding? Are you kidding me? God's going to let them come right into his very presence. And you've got to believe they just go nuts. They love it. They glorify God. What a God. What a merciful God. What a gracious God. What a loving God that he would send his own son, the second person of the Trinity, 
to die in our place, to bear the penalty for our sins, rise from the dead, save us gloriously, and then allow us every day of our lives to come right into his very presence. And so in verse 13, Paul says, So I ask you, Ephesian believers, it's what he's saying here. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Obviously, those believers at Ephesus in the book of Ephesians to whom it is written, they had heard about his imprisonment. They had heard about his many sufferings for the gospel. And evidently they were troubled by that, and understandably so, but he assures them, he comforts them. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart what I am suffering for you in order to bring you the gospel because it's for your glory. And here's how the word glory here is used. Because through the gospel you have come to partake of the manifold wisdom of God. You have been saved. You now get to glorify God along with the holy angels. You have entered into this glorious, merciful, amazing salvation. And it is your glory that you get to glorify God and to praise and worship him. So don't, don't get discouraged when you hear about my sufferings. It's been for you. It's been for your glory. Well, this morning, I want us to look at another question to kind of bring this all together. I believe it's a question that is so important for the Christian life. Maybe it's a question you've studied before. Maybe it's not. But this is the question. Why does God so passionately pursue his own glory? Have you ever wondered that? Why does God so passionately pursue his own glory? Why is God all about his own glory? We see a Christian athlete win a race or win a game and they get interviewed on TV and they say, all the glory goes to God. We see someone who is musically talented and they play uh, a great piece of music or, excuse me, or sing a piece of music. And then they say, and all glory goes to God. All glory goes to God. You get blessed in your life. You know God has blessed you beyond what you deserve. And you say, I give him all the glory. And you know what? We should do all those things. We should, but why do we do that? Why does God so passionately pursue his own glory? Three reasons. There are more than three reasons this morning. But I want to give you what I think are probably three of the most important reasons why God pursues his own glory. First of all, he is worthy of all glory, praise, and adoration. First of all, he is worthy. God is the only being in all of the universe who is worthy of all glory, praise, and honor. We are not. We are created creatures. We are finite. We are fallen and sinful. For us to pursue our own glory is selfish, self-centered, and self-absorbed, but it is not so with God. God is worthy. He is perfect. He is holy. He is righteous. He is just. He is 
infinitely, perfectly merciful, loving, kind, and gracious. In his very being, he is worthy of all the glory we give to him. Remember what I read in Revelation chapter 5. In a loud voice, they sang thousands upon thousands, ten thousands upon ten thousands of angels sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Don't miss that word. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. The reason we glorify God is because he is worthy of that glory. Second reason. All creation exists for the glory of God. Everything that you see around you, everything that you know about in creation was created for the glory of God. Everything exists for the glory of God. Psalm 19.1. It's not on the screen. Maybe you know it well. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the skies proclaim his handiwork. Isn't that a great verse? The heavens declare the glory of God. And the skies, when we look into the skies, they proclaim the work of his hands, his handiwork. Everything exists for the glory of God. Every stone, every hill, every mountain, every ant, every lizard, every leopard, every lion, every bear, every giraffe, every star, every planet, every aspect of the entire galaxy, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl were created and exist for the glory of God. That's why you were created. No matter what you pursue in your life, you need to know that the very essence of your existence, the reason you're upon this earth, is to bring glory to God. Now we know that unbelieving people don't bring glory to God, but they are going against the very essence of their creation. They are defying their very purpose for being on this earth. We glorify God because all creation exists for the glory of God. There's one more reason, and this one is special to me. It's something I learned many years ago, and it was life-changing. Can't say that all the time. Every once in a while you hear a truth, and it's life-changing. This was for me many years ago when I first heard it. Third reason that God so passionately pursues his own glory when we glorify God, we enjoy our greatest, most exhilarating fulfillment as human beings. You were created to give glory to God. Here's how it works. You glorify God, he gives you joy. You glorify God, he gives you joy. He fills you with a joy, satisfaction, contentment, peace, and even an exhilaration that cannot be found anywhere else or in anything or any other person can't you were born 
you live, you exist for the glory of God. And when you glorify him, he gives you joy and you glorify him and he gives you joy. You want lots of joy? Glorify God. Glorify God. We are, to use a modern term, we are hardwired to bring glory to God and return, get his joy. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, the Apostle Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do what? Do it all for the glory of God. Why would he say that? It's because God brings you joy. He brings you contentment, peace, satisfaction. When you glorify him, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all. Do it all for the glory of God. Some of you have probably heard this, but many years ago in the Westminster Shorter Catechism comes this famous statement, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's it. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. In Isaiah chapter 6 and verses 1 through 3, it says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim. Seraphim are a particular special category of angels. Each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now I want you to picture that scene. Here are these angels flying around, calling out to each other. What are they calling to each other? When they see God high and lifted up on his throne and the train of his robe filling the temple, they're like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth, the whole earth is full of his glory. We're going to close with a song now that I want to actually be kind of part of the message. It's a Chris Tomlin song that we sing from time to time. It's called All to Us. And rarely does a song go perfectly with a sermon, but this song does. I mean, it like goes perfect with my message this morning. The whole song does, but there's one particular line in that song that I really want you to focus on. It says, let the glory of your name be the passion of the church. That's it. That's what this passage is about. Let the glory of your name be the passion of the church. As an individual, as a church body, we exist and live for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray for First Baptist Church of St. John's that through this church, that through this one church, you would make known your manifold wisdom to the angels in heaven. And may you realize your eternal purpose in Christ Jesus to bring great glory, great praise, and great honor to your name. Help us always to glorify you, for we ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen.